0: Some years ago, one of my best friends and I, we were actually on a multi-state road trip to a pastor's leadership conference, and during the drive, we had a lot of time to talk, and as we were talking, he was asking me a lot of questions about my past and the life that I had lived B.C., before Christ because though he and I were both pastors at that point, we had experienced very different lives growing up. Uh, He had grown up as a pastor's kid. Uh, His parents had a great marriage. Both of them were pretty amazing human beings. I know knew both of them. Uh, He got a well along with his sister. He never experienced a time where God and Jesus weren't really in the driver's seat of his life. And he had managed to live uh, porn-free in his life and dating. He had pretty, kept pretty uh, strict physical boundaries. In fact, he and his wife were both virgins when they got married. I mean, he was still human and not perfect, but honestly, uh, he had lived a highly moral life by most people's standards. And uh, by nature, he was a rule follower, uh, pretty black and white. And then there was me. Uh, Regularly in trouble from a very young age. My home imploded when I was uh, nine years old. My journey into porn began when I was eight. I became sexually active at 14, drinking at 15, smoking pot at 16. And once I got deployed to airman school in San Diego, uh, and then overseas in clubs, one-night stands were just kind of my standard operating procedure until 2 a.m., March 20th, 1988, which I know for many of you was a long time ago. And everything changed, which is a story I've often, uh, often told and will share again, just not today. Because what I noticed about this conversation with my friend was, is that he was definitely curious about the intimate details of my extracurricular activities before my big surrender to Christ. And it kind of hit me as he was asking these questions it, uh, for so much detail. It was almost like he was trying to live vicariously through my past. So I asked him about it, and he got quiet. And I'll never forget his response. After a few seconds of silence, he said, it's just not fair. He said, I'm never going to get to experience all that you did. You got to live a full-on hedonistic life where as far back as I can remember, I've always lived by the rules as a good Christian, yet you're going to get the exact same result that I am. Peace with God and heaven when we die. And I tried to explain to him How it was actually the pain, the self-loathing, the emptiness of that same hedonistic lifestyle that actually broke me. But it didn't matter. He felt robbed. He felt like he had denied himself of so many things that he wanted to experience so that he could be a good Christian boy, right with God. But in the end, he felt like he could have done it all and had the same end result. And in that moment, honestly, he was mad. And I know because he told me he was mad. And, and in my life, I can't tell you how many Christians that, and Christian leaders as well that I have listened to them. And it's like there's this low-grade anger simmering just below the surface. And sometimes it's, no, it's low-grade. Sometimes it just seems like they're just angry. It's like this righteous indignation. But if you get the chance to really, really dig, it's really not about God. The hard truth is deep down... They're jealous because when it comes down to it, it's like, here I am following all of the rules, being a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl, behaving myself while everyone else is having the fun that honestly I wish I could be having. Now, we're in the sixth part of this series, The Forgotten Away, Should I Stay Christian? And the motive behind this series is the next generation because the current dropout rate for religious faith in the U.S. is $2.7 million. A year. 2.7 million dropping away and changing their religious identity to no religious affiliation or nuns. The percentage of young adult dropouts is 64%. Nearly two thirds of U.S. 18 to 29 year olds who grow, grew up in the church have withdrawn from church involvement and have, uh, after having been active as a child or teen. And for a huge percent, honestly, it's not really about God or about Jesus. It's about the religion that we call Christianity. And this is what we've been dealing with, that in the first century, the people who followed Jesus didn't call themselves Christian. And Christian is a safe term because you can make it mean anything you want it to, because the Bible doesn't define it. So you can be a Christian, do and believe anything you want, and then you can cherry pick Bible verses to support just about anything you want to do. You can be Christian and be on both sides of every political issue, financial issue, social issue, ethical issue, moral issue. In World War II, You had people on both sides in the trenches praying to the same God using the same Bible in different languages that God would protect them. And today, most who are outside the faith, they view, uh, most who aren't Christians or those who are walking away from Christianity, their perspective is Christians think they are the only ones that are going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. But you open the New Testament and you ask what does it mean to follow Jesus, and it gets overwhelmingly clear. Through this whole series, we've gone back to the marching orders of Jesus when he gathered his disciples, which is what he called his followers. He said, if you're going to forget everything else, here's the bottom line. people." Know that you are my follower, not by what you do for an hour on Sunday morning or by your social media post or by your religious tattoos or the fact that you wear a cross around your neck. People should know, recognize you as one of my followers because of the extraordinary way that you treat one another, specifically the way you love one another. And last week we looked at John, who was a follower of Jesus, and how John said that Jesus came full to the brim of grace and full to the brim of truth. And last week we spent most of our time talking about this seemingly op- opposing idea of grace and truth. Grace is you're okay. Truth is you're not. Grace is I forgive you. Truth is but you're accountable. Grace is... It- Going to work out. Truth is, you're going to have to work on it. John said, after watching Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher who was committed to the law of God, dealing with various people, various sinful people in Jesus, we saw the embodiment of, not the balance of, the embodiment of grace and truth, full to the brim, both in one person. The challenge is that for some of us, for some of us, we're a little too much grace. And I'll just acknowledge, I fall into that camp. Some of us are a little too much truth. Some of us grew up in an all grace truth, like everybody's fine, you're fine, God just loves you the way you are, you don't need to change a thing. Some of you grew up in a truth church, nothing is fine, none of you are fine, it's just no. And, and for some of you, uh, you know, a grace church, you will know, Loves you, some of you, a truth church. God loves you, but He doesn't like you. Uh, And Jesus comes along, He just wrecks all of these categories. He says, If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, then you must embody both. But it is very difficult and it's very messy. And last week we looked at several occasions of Jesus illustrating grace and truth, but there's one in particular where Jesus actually teaches what this is to look like. And context is everything. This is Luke chapter 15. This is one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible. My hope is it'll become one of yours as well. But in the chapter 15, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, the tax gatherers, they were like a multi-level mafia business, okay, where the majority of money comes back to me as the gatherer, which is why people hated tax gatherers. Tax gatherers walked around with entourages. They would pull up in their tricked-out escalades. All the bodyguards would pile out, the thugs out, the tax collector would get out. They would all protect him because he could take as much money as he wanted as long as Rome got their fair share. So tax gatherers didn't even get to be in the same category as sinners. It was, these guys are the worst of the worst, and then everyone else, all of the sinners. Now, sinners were people that could never be acceptable to God, maybe because of their occupation, like shepherds, or because of their lifestyle, like prostitutes. They were people who would never, ever be acceptable to, to, to God. So there was that group, and then there were the tax gatherers, and they gathered to hear Jesus, which means that if Jesus were here, and he had a church, and he was a pastor, it would be filled with tax gatherers and sinners, and they would show up first, and they would be on the front row. The people who were most alienated from God gathered around and couldn't get enough of Jesus, which begs the question, why is it that the tax gatherers and sinners of our day, whoever that is, can't stand the church and church people? It's because I believe we're either too much grace or too much truth. We either don't say anything because we're afraid someone might get offended, or we say too much and people feel condemned. So don't miss this. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And they felt, even though he was nothing like them, that he liked them too. And besides the tax collectors and sinners, there was another group present, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes, as an as embraces, he seems to like, he seems to approve of sinners and eats with them. So the implication was that Jesus condones their behavior. So the people with whom Jesus agreed almost 100% theologically, in terms of what God said about the law in the Old Testament, found themselves at odds with Jesus because he seemed to like and be liked by the people who are nothing like them theologically. So they were confused. And so they muttered, this man eats with sinners. He should hang out with us, but he hangs out with them. He agrees with us, and yet it seems like he condones their behavior because I don't see him condemning them. So Jesus is surrounded by tax gatherers, sinners, and religious people on the outer edge muttering. So Jesus decides this would be a great opportunity to teach Uh, the way God views sinners, and because God, or because Jesus is the master teacher, he doesn't begin with God or theology. He begins with sheep. Now, some of you are new to Bible study. A parable is simply a story used to illustrate something that's true, but it's difficult to understand. It's it's, it's emotional. And Jesus was the master at this approach. And this day, he's talking to two very different groups of people with two very different worldviews but he wants to teach them the same lesson. So he begins with something that will get everybody nodding their heads. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. So Jesus begins with a common emotion. He begins with a common emotion of loss. And he gets everybody to begin nodding their heads. He says, because everybody knows what it's like to lose something important to them. He says, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And maybe for the first time in first century Judaism, tax gatherers and sinners and teachers of the law and Pharisees are all doing the same thing. They're going, yeah, I, I know what that feels like. And they're all in agreement. Jesus is the master teacher. And he says, and if you were to lose one sheep and went looking for it, how, and you found it, how would you feel? What, Wouldn't you rejoice? Wouldn't you tell everyone? And again, everyone all at once, they agree. And before they can raise a hand and ask a question or think too hard, he says, now, did you know that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who returns than there is over the 99 who never got lost to begin with? And before they can raise their hand and ask a question, he says, I'll tell you another one. He looks out, he sees some women in the audience. He says, what happens when a woman loses her precious Coins, and the women in the audience immediately thought about that particular coin, which means nothing to us in our context, but in their context, this coin went way beyond the value of an individual coin. In in our culture, Jesus might have said, "Uh, "What if you'd lost your wedding ring, or your engagement ring, or what if you lost your mother's wedding ring?" He says, "Wouldn't you move all of the furniture and get the broom out and get some flashlights out and search every corner of the room with a lamp until you found?" Coin and the tax gatherers' wives and the Pharisees' wives, every woman there is nodding their head. And and Jesus said, Do you know that when God feels separated from a lost sinner, that he goes looking with the same intensity as you would go looking for that lost coin, that lost ring? And before anyone can raise their hand or ask a question or object, he goes to the third part of this brilliant teaching. And this is the part that most of us are familiar with. He says, There once was a man who had sons. An older son and a younger. The older son was a behavior. The younger son was a misbehavior. And the younger one said to his father, and I'm actually going to word this in the way that it would have landed emotionally with his audience, what they heard. He said, Father, I wish you were already dead. I want my inheritance, but you are taking too long to die. So let's just pretend that you're dead and give me my inheritance. This is exactly how it would have struck everyone in Jesus's audience. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the tax gatherers and sinners are all equally offended on behalf of this father. But it gets worse. Jesus says the father decides to do it. He begins to liquidate whatever he has to to be to begin to divide up the inheritance terms of cash or flocks or herds and slaves. He divides everything up that he needs to to be able to give this younger, irresponsible, insolent son his part of the inheritance. And again, everyone in Jesus's audience is equally offended on behalf of the father. And Jesus says that the son sticks around for a while, but then he decides this town's not big enough for the two of us. He liquidates what his father can give him. He carries everything that he can with him. He travels to a distant country, and he engages in the term is a lavish lifestyle. He engages in a wild lifestyle. And later on, we discover he engages in a very immoral lifestyle. And before long, all that money, all that wealth that his father had spent his entire lifetime amassing is gone. We don't know if it was a few weeks or a few years. We just don't know. And then a famine comes to that world, part of the world, and then things go from bad to worse. And he had to get a job, but he couldn't get a good job. He had to get a bad job, and things got worse and worse. And everybody, everybody in Jesus' audience, the tax gatherers, the sinners, and the religious people, they are all on the same page, just like good. That's exactly what this undeserving, that's what a man like this deserves. And Jesus makes it a worst-case scenario. This Jewish young man, the only job he could get was feeding, who knows, pigs. Everybody in his audience is like, yes, perfect. This is exactly, in fact, the man gets so hungry that the only thing that he can eat, find eat is the pig's. It's the ultimate punishment for this irresponsible, rebellious son. And everybody in Jesus' audience agrees. And if he would have ended the story there, they all would have high-fived, saying, I'm going home, I'm getting my family together, I'm going to get my kids in front of me and say, see, this is what happens if you dishonor your father and mother, so this is why you don't do it. And Jesus says, I'm not finished. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And yet, I'm starving to death. I will set up and go back to my father and say to him, and then he creates a speech Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And at this point, Jesus' audience is like, it, just when I thought it couldn't get any better, this is the best. When he shows up on the Father's doorstep, the Pharisees like, were like, I know exactly what I would do if that were my son. And the tax gatherers and the sinners were like, I know exactly what I would do if that were my son. And they're all listening intently because they all think they know what's coming. And then Jesus, said, Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, the Father saw him and was filled with, And this is where Jesus just pulls the legs out from under every single one of them. And this is where Jesus pulls the legs out from every single one of us. This is where Jesus speaks into the heart of everyone and says, None of you truly understand God, our Heavenly Father. Or how God views those who consider themselves sinners. And none of you fully understands the depths of your own personal sin. Because if Jesus had left it up to his audience to fill in the blank, they would have all, religious, unreligious alike, would have used the same word. Anger. The Father was filled with anger. You humiliated me. You took a lifetime of wealth and you squandered it. Now you come back for either more or for mercy. Either way, the father has every right in the world to be angry at his son. And had he said anger, everyone in in Jesus' audience, religious or not, would have said yes, because we would think that way too. Jesus' audience was, he was in the presence of a bunch of angry, religious, muttering people, and he was in the presence of people who all they had known about religion was anger, much like many people of our day. But Jesus said when the father saw his son, he was filled with compassion for him. See, this is why we need to quit being Christian. Because we have all heard or seen or known some pretty angry, judgmental Christians, right? We all know Christians who like to get angry about sin. Other people's sin. Ever notice that? You've known Christians, maybe they have a list. And maybe that Christian can be seen in the mirror. It's a list of things that you should never, ever do. But you ever notice for for people like this, the stuff that they do is on the list. So Jesus takes us all by surprise. The Father who alone has been wronged. The Father who alone has lost the most. The father who alone has had his reputation trashed in the community. When he saw his son, he was filled with an emotion, but it wasn't anger. It was compassion. And then his audience just completely loses it over the next statement. Jesus says, and he ran to his son. What A man in that culture, especially the patriarch of a family, does not run. Servants run, and they run to serve the patriarch. And it gets worse. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And then all the religious people are like, oh my gosh, what is it? Now he's unclean because his son was feeding pigs. He's unclean. And everybody in Jesus' audience is equally freaked out and equally offended. And at the same time, there has never been so much agreement. Among these groups, because for all of them, it's this is all wrong. The son starts a speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father doesn't argue with him. You, you have sinned against me. You have sinned against heaven. You are in fact no longer worthy to be called my son. But the father said to the servant, Quick, 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 bring, bring the robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger. And you need to know the best robe in the house would have been the father's robe. The father's robe would have been the symbolic symbolism of his status as the patriarch of the family. And the best ring, the ring in the house would have been the father's ring. This father is making a public proclamation that as of this moment, this son of mine is fully and completely restored to his status in the family as my son and put sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf, which we can't truly relate to in this culture, and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. And let's, if, In other words, let's throw the biggest party that this family in this town has seen in a long, long time, and I'm telling you the people in Jesus' audience would have been stunned he's immediately reestablished there's no probation period there's no like a month of penance or something like go live out in the barn like none of this and then jesus says this is all going on with the misbehavior misbehavior where's the behavior well he's out in the fields doing what the behaving firstborn does he's working I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, and I need to please my dad and do everything right and play by the rules and do, do things by the law and grow up and take over the family business. And now that that stupid bratty brother of mine is gone, I've got like peace, I don't have to deal with anything, no more trouble. And eventually he heads back to the house, he sees all the commotion, he sees the, hears the music, he sees the dancing, he sees people coming in from all around the community. And he says to one of the servants, what's, what's going on? And the servant says, your, your brother's back. And your dad killed the fatted calf. You know, the one he, you probably thought he was saving up for your birthday or maybe for your wedding. The one we've been fattening up for a big party. He killed it and we're having a big party. And your dad wants you to get cleaned up and come on in. And the old, older brother, and then here's our word. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, why would he be angry? What, what, What's there for him to be angry about? So I also have to ask all of us Christian people, why do we get angry at sinners who are living a sinful life? Why don't we initially feel compassion? Why anger? And why was it not in Jesus? See, we can safely conclude from these parables that every single day, the father, who alone had been insulted, alone been humiliated, alone been wronged more than anyone, was not waking up every morning angry and bitter at his son. Instead, he woke up every morning with a heart filled with love and concern as every day he would glance down the road longing to see the return of his son. And at this point in the story, Jesus kind of glances to the back row of the audience to the mutterers. But the older brother is angry, like you guys. You're muttering. You're so bothered by the fact that people who are nothing like me, like me, and I like them. In fact, it seems like I like them more than I like you. And you're angry. What, what is that? Where does that come from? Jesus says, I want that to go away. If you're going to be my follower, you need to figure out the source of that and need to squash it because in me, you're not going to find any of that. And in my gathering, in my gathering, those who are truly my not-Christians, because Christians, Christians like to hate everything. I mean, they boycott everything and they, mean, they love to be mean and catch people doing wrong so that they can point it out and then pull out a verse and just bash them over the head with it. See, Christians love doing that kind of stuff. Disciples of Jesus don't. So so here's here's the picture. You have a father who's just spent a lot of money and effort to create this, this lavish celebration, this festive celebration. It's a big party. He's got two sons, one that doesn't want to come in because he doesn't think he's worthy, and the other because he agrees with his brother. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years, ready? All of you have been Christian 10 years or more. All these years I have been slaving for you. I have been faithful. I have been in church. I have volunteered in church. I have given to church. I've been faithful. I raised my kids in church. I didn't sleep with anyone. I did write. I didn't even speed more than seven miles over. I've been faithful to you all these years. I've never disobeyed your orders. I'm a faithful rule follower. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, not my brother, but when this son of yours, I think you want to add another word in there, the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him. I am angry, I'm mad, I'm not going to your stupid party and I'm not talking to my stupid brother. And then the Father, God in this parable, and this is huge. My son, you are always, what's the word? With me. What does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. Son, you thought this was about earning, pleasing, winning, and gaining. It's not. I know that you have been out there serving, and I appreciate it, but our relationship was never broken. And it gets better than that. Everything I have is yours. It's not like, you know, we're not going to redivide the estate back up. He's not going to get another third. I mean, his is gone. Everything that I has, have is yours, and you are with me. Our relationship is not or ever been broken, so why, why are you angry at your brother? Why isn't your heart filled, filled with compassion like my heart is filled with compassion for him? We had to celebrate and be glad because of this brother of yours. He, he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now is found. And Then Jesus just walks off. And everybody's just left wondering, well, what'd he do? What will he decide? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. I think he didn't tell us on purpose because everybody in his audience had a decision to make. Just like you and me. Do you know the foundation of what we struggle with and being characterized as people by grace and truth? It's the point of this parable. That God could not love you more and nothing you could do will cause him to love you less. And every one of us, like I think we really need to hear that. God could not love you more. Nothing more you can do, can't earn it. And there's nothing you have done, will do, or can do that will cause him to love you less. Which also means that you will never be eyeball to eyeball with anyone or interact with anyone in your world. The sinners, the tax collectors, uh, who God could love more. And nothing they could do could cause him to love them less. So the question is, who is that for you? What category of people offend you the most? What category of people cause you to mutter? Is it Democrats? Is it Republicans? Is it ever Trumpers? Is it never Trumpers? Is it rainbow flag waving pride marchers? Is it God hates fags sign holders? Is it anti-abortionist? Is it pro-choicers? Who is it that offends you? Whoever it is, Jesus is saying, God could not love them more. And there is nothing, any of those people that could do anything to cause God to love them less. And let's just be honest. That's offensive. It's offensive to us. But that is what it looks like when, like Jesus, we embody the fullness of grace and truth. And if we can get to the point where that characterizes the way that we think about the world, two things will happen. Sin will break our heart, and repentance will stir our heart. Sin will always break our hearts, first for the sinner that we see in the mirror every day, because every one of us knows what it feels like to feel regret to have a decision that made sense in the moment, perfect sense. We had all the reasons, didn't it? But on the other side of it, we discovered we were wrong. It was destructive. We may have hurt others. We hurt ourselves, people that we say we love. So we know what it's like. We know what it's like to be a sinner in need of grace and truth. So if we're going to return to the forgotten way and be a disciple of Jesus, we have to quit being angry with sinful people because we are equally sinners. We need to stop being mad at people that don't behave and believe the way we think they should behave and believe and quit being angry with segments of society that just don't get it and who don't live out the Judeo-Christian values and our way of thinking. And instead of feeling anger, we need to feel broken and compelled to love, search, and reach them, serve and reach them. Because as a father with four adult children, as they were growing, and now they're adults, but most of this as they were growing... Do you know what I felt when they made four decisions? I felt, ah, oh, I felt pain. Because the decisions they were making in the moment made total sense to them. And I felt pain, especially with our oldest in high school, and like right after he's making decisions that were just on the verge of haunting him the rest of his life. Why did I feel pain and grief? Because my children could not and cannot ever hurt themselves without hurting me as their father. So that means when you and I decide to embrace God's heart for everyone, sin will cause us grief and repentance will stir our hearts. That's why we cheer people who take their next faith step or they take their next step in their faith journey or they get baptized it's why we clap, it's why we cheer because if there's ever a time in a church to celebrate and get loud, it's them because Jesus says, do you know what lights heaven up? And your heavenly father it's not all of us who are working out in the field day after day after day getting in a right right, and obeying the law and obeying Jesus, I mean we need to do that we're in this relationship but what lights up your heavenly father in heaven is when somebody who's distant from him begins to move towards him and God has invited us to help those younger brothers and younger sisters do exactly to that, exactly that. So our response to sin and our response to repentance is the gauge that tells us if we are a group of people or individuals who truly understand the heart of Jesus and the heart of our Heavenly Father in the forgotten way. Now for some of you, when you hear the story of the prodigal son, you relate to the prodigal. I mean, even though maybe you're sitting in this room or listening online to one degree or another, you know there's an area or a large area or completely you've been keeping God the Father at, at an, arm distance, an arm's distance and maybe even use Christians as your reason why. And I would say that what perhaps Jesus would say to you is if you're a prodigal, if some degree you've turned your back towards your Heavenly Father, it's, it's time to turn towards Him to turn around, to come home and repent. The, the student, the college student, the young adult, maybe you're middle-aged now and it's no coincidence that you're hearing this message. I want to invite you to fully come home because your Heavenly Father wants you back. Your Heavenly Father wants you to come and be with Him. He wants your conscience clean. He wants you to be able to go to bed at night knowing you have peace with Him and knowing that when you pray, there's nothing blocking or getting in the way of your prayers. Your Heavenly Father doesn't want you to wait until life gets so bad and so complicated that the only place you have to turn is to Him. So maybe your next step is just to pray, God, I have sinned. I am a sinner. But Jesus said that you will not only accept me, but that you are thrilled when I turn to you. God, I have sinned. I am a sinner. And right now through Jesus, I'm turning to you. I believe that he died. I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I believe through his sacrifice that I can come to you. And for some of you, your next step is to get baptized. For some of you, your next step is to go public with your faith in a deeply symbolic and wonderful way through baptism And if either of those scenarios describe you, I want you to talk to me or the person you came with or encourage you to listen online. Some of you, your response is to repent of being an older brother. Because what most people miss is both both brothers were just as separated from the father. Neither of them loved the father for who he was. They just wanted what he could give them. But the older brother was actually in greater danger because of his refusal to the father, whereas the younger brother was willing to receive the father's love and go into the feast. The truth is, once upon a time, every single one of us was a prodigal. And once upon a time, most of us experienced the unbelievable mercy and forgiveness of God when we came back in that overwhelming aspect of grace, which is, I'm not going to hold up a list of what you did or what you've done. I'm just so glad that you're home and that you're with me. Let's celebrate. But for some of us, we're more like the older brother and it's time for us to stop looking at the checklist and stop looking at the mental checklist of our own that we keep of ourselves of here's the things that I do right and all the right things that we've done and, and do so that deep down it can cause us to feel superior or others, to others or that we've got leverage with God that he somehow owes us, because let's be honest, that's an exhausting way to live. To wake up every day thinking, I've got to make sure I check all of the boxes on my be good list and keep God happy so he'll love me. I mean, I would be utterly broken hearted if I were to discover that every morning, my beautiful wife woke up every morning thinking, okay, I've got to make sure that I do everything right today and check all the boxes to keep Chad happy with me and so that he'll love me. Or if my children had grown up thinking that my love for them was somehow based on whether or not they checked all the boxes of what it means to be a good son, or how brokenhearted I would feel if my wife or my children didn't feel like they could come to me with anything, that they were somehow unworthy of my love. So we get this. And when it comes to God, for the prodigal and the behavior, it's an invitation born of love. For us all to enter his party, to all enter his feast, to accept and celebrate his deep immeasurable love and compassion for every single one of us. The, the band is going to come up and they're going to sing this fantastic song called Promises. And, and I hope as they do that you can truly internalize these words. And even sing them if they resonate with you regardless of whether or not you think you're a singer. This is a judgment-free zone. And for you to just embrace these words. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for every single one of us because um, grace and truth is messy. And how to respond to people that are different from us, especially when we feel like they're going in a direction that is destructive for them and destructive for other people and and to do it in such a way that we can actually have a positive influence. God, it's hard. It's hard. And we find it nearly impossible to to be what Jesus was, full of grace, full of truth. We get imbalanced. So I just pray for every single one of us, for our own personal lives, for those that are closest to us, and for those that you have called us to impact their lives, to love them even though we find it almost impossible to love them for what they believe, what they represent. God, your kingdom is upside down and it's confusing. And yet, 2,000 years ago, it changed the world. It can happen again. and It can happen through us, but not without your help. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.